You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the Scripture reading from the Old Testament, Isaiah 43, and we'll read from verse 14 to chapter 44, verse 5. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Your spokesman rebelled against me. So I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple, and I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. This morning we're continuing with our series of sermons on the Gospel of Mark. Let's now turn to Mark 1, verses 14 through 20, where we find our text After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. 
The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, short messages are often popular. Unless the speaker is someone who can mesmerize his audience, we usually prefer that the words be few. Of all the messages or sermons recorded in the Bible, one of the shortest is that of the prophet Jonah. He went reluctantly to Nineveh and he preached. And we're told that all he said was, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now perhaps he said more. It's even likely that he said more. But this is all that's recorded. And at first glance, it sounds like a message of judgment. It sounds like a short message of bad news. In our text this morning, we also find a prophet. A prophet giving a short message. However, this prophet is different. He brings unambiguous good news from God. The Lord Jesus is portrayed in our text as a prophet sent from God. In fact, we see Him here as the ultimate fulfillment of all the prophets in Scripture, including Jonah. We see Him here as our chief prophet and teacher taking up His official duties. That's the theme for the sermon this morning. And under that theme... We'll consider, first of all, Christ's preaching. We'll look at that in verses 14 and 15. And then we'll also consider Christ's calling of the first disciples. And that's in verses 16 through 20. Well, verse 14 introduces our passage by mentioning what happened to John. John was introduced by Mark earlier in the chapter, and he was introduced as the one who was prophesied to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's done that now. Now he's put in prison. And we know from the other Gospels that Herod, King Herod, was behind this. But Mark is our text. And we want to hear what God is saying here in this particular place. Our translation says that John was put in prison. Literally, the Greek text says that John was handed over handed over. And there are two things to note with those words. First of all, you have to know something about the way the Gospel according to Mark was written. It was written with the idea that the people who read it would read it in one sitting. And if you were to read it in Greek in one sitting, from front to back, wouldn't take you very long, there would be certain words that stand out. And one of those words would be the word that is used here to describe what happened to John. 
This word would stand out because it's the same word that's used to describe what happens to Jesus later on. Just to give two examples, and there are many more, but two examples. In in Mark 3.19, Judas Iscariot is said to be the one who would hand over Jesus. Same word. And in Mark 15.1, the Jews are handing over Jesus to Pilate. And you might say, well, so what? Why is that important? Well, Mark is preparing us for the story of Jesus' ministry. It's not about glory as the world understands it. It's about suffering and a cross. The second thing we can note here is that Mark says that John was put in prison. And when, it, when you put it that way, it raises the question in your mind, well, who put him there? Like we noted just a moment ago, we know from elsewhere that Herod was involved. But Mark doesn't say that. And the ambiguity drives you to ask, who is really behind this? Was it really just Herod acting on his own? Or is there some bigger plan at work? From what follows, we quickly realize that this was all part of God's plan, God's scheme to start the career of Jesus as a prophet and teacher in Israel. When John was put in prison, the Lord Jesus, He took that as a sign. He realized that it was time for Him to begin His official teaching and preaching ministry. And he does this by initially going into Galilee. And we so easily read over those words and we fail to ask the question, why? Why Galilee? We need to ask that question. Because if Jesus was concerned about becoming a person of influence in His world, it wouldn't make any sense at all to go to a place like Galilee. He needed to be in a place like Jerusalem, or better yet, Corinth, or or Athens, or, or maybe Alexandria, or Antioch. Those were the centers of influence in, in Jesus' world. If you wanted to turn the world upside down, you'd start in those places. But Galilee? That was Major League Hick country. Why there? Well, there are at least two answers to that question. The first answer has to do with what we just noted about the character of his ministry. It wasn't about the prestige. It wasn't about the influence. It wasn't about wooing King Herod or the Jewish leaders or the the Roman government. And sure, he would eventually make his way to Jerusalem at different times. But he chose to begin his ministry in a country backwater. And this fit with the character of what he was about. This was part of his humiliation. And because he so clearly identifies himself with this region, the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem, they later on, they ridicule him by referring to him as the the Galilean or the Nazarene. Now those were not just identifiers, as if, you know, say he's a Canadian or something like that. These were insults. People said this to insult other people. 
That's the first answer. The second answer has to do with his upbringing. Because Galilee was where Jesus grew up. His family was there. His friends were there. People he knew. And if we keep in mind that he was coming to preach good news, it would make sense that he would want to tell those who are closest to him first. When we have good news, normally we don't go first and and share it with all kinds of strangers, people we don't know. Instead, we call up our spouse or we call up our kids or grandkids. We let them know. It's the same here with Jesus. We're told that He went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Literally, the text says that He was heralding the Gospel. He was a messenger sent from God, acting like the prophets of old. And verse 15 goes on to tell us exactly what this Gospel, this good news, sounded like. Mark tells us that He said that the time has come. By that, He meant that the decisive time had arrived. It had been fulfilled. It's a special way of speaking about all the promises of God from Genesis to that moment. This is it. Finally, after all those centuries, the golden moment has come. And the Messiah is here. The Messiah is taking His place on the pulpit. And He begins His sermon by telling the people of Galilee that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God. Well, that's simply the rule or the reign of God, if you want to have a really short definition of it. If we want to expand that definition and become a little bit more detailed, well, then we can say that it involves God saving a people for Himself. It involves God gathering those people into the church. And it also impacts the whole universe. It involves a redeemed universe. The kingdom of God is a multifaceted thing. And we could spend the rest of the sermon just considering that one concept. But for our purposes this morning, we just need to see it as the reign of God. The reign of God about to break into the world through the work of Jesus Christ. This is what he preached as good news to his fellow Galileans. It's good for us to think for a moment about why this is good news. What's so good about it? Kingdom of God. Well, if God is good, and He is, and He is on the throne, isn't that a blessing? If God is saving a people for Himself, isn't it encouraging to know that He is a God of salvation? That He is a God of grace and mercy who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve? If God is bringing those people into His church, isn't it wonderful to know a God who protects His people, who showers blessing upon blessing on them through the means of grace? Jesus says all this is near. And how can that not be good news? That was the essence of the preaching of the prophet Jesus in Galilee when He began His ministry. Like with Jonah, we can be sure that He said more. But this is what it all came down to. And this message demanded some kind of response. And we find that at the end of verse 15 where He says, Repent and believe the good news. 
Notice that the Lord Jesus gives two commands here. In His preaching, He did not invite a response. He didn't say, won't you please consider what I have to say to you today? Or He didn't say, I invite you today to consider the good news about the kingdom of God. Wouldn't you please do that? It would make me very happy if you would think about it. Instead, he says it very boldly and directly. Repent and believe the good news. And that fits with what we find him preaching elsewhere in Scripture as well. And it also fits with the preaching of the apostles. Let's consider the first part of that command that the Lord Jesus gives here. Repent. Well, we heard this word before in the preaching of John. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we noted there when we looked at that passage that the word there used in Greek is metanoeo. Metanoeo. Which literally means to have a change of mind. That's the biblical meaning of repentance. Have a change of mind, a change of heart, change of attitude. Why did Jesus preach this at this moment? Where did the people of Israel need to change their mind in relation to the kingdom of God? Well, we know from various sources that their social and their political agendas had lost sight of God's kingdom. Their vision of God on the throne involved Caesar off the throne. They had a vision, an earthly vision, of renewed grandeur for Israel as a people and as a nation. And apart from a small remnant, much of Israel had drifted away from loyalty to Yahweh and to His Word. All these ways and more, they had to be called back to a way of thinking that fit with God's Word. And they were not only called to repent, but also to believe the good news that the kingdom of God was near. They were called to believe what this prophet was preaching. Accept his word in faith. Trusting that this was good news for them. And today, Christ continues to bring that message to us. To us. Through various means. For instance, at this very moment, He's doing it through the Word as it's being preached. And so what do we do with Christ's message today? Repent and believe the good news of the Kingdom of God. Oh, we could begin by thinking about the ways in which we have misunderstood the Kingdom of God. What do we understand by that expression? And and does it fit with what God's Word says about it? And perhaps for us, our biggest failure is in not thinking and in not speaking about the kingdom of God at all. Along with others, we can get taken in by the latest Christian fads, but when it comes to what Christ preached as most important, the kingdom of God, we're way off the radar. There could be different reasons for that. We don't need to go into them. The point is, do we need to repent in our day as the people of Israel did in theirs before the preaching of Christ? 
Where are we in need of a change of mind about the kingdom of God? As then, the kingdom of God is near today. And do we really believe that this is good news? Not only for us, but also for others. And when we share that good news with others, do we communicate it as Christ did? As His apostles did? It seems that often we're reluctant to express the Gospel call as the command that it is. Under different influences, we see the Gospel call as the the invitation of a meek and mild Jesus rather than the command of a prophet, the prophet Messiah. Brothers and sisters, the call to believe the good news is a command from Him. And we can communicate it in a way that fits with our own personality. But we should never leave the impression with anyone, either inside or outside the church, that obedience to this call is optional. Don't get me wrong, people can choose to disobey the Gospel call. But they are not allowed to. When people ignore or disobey Christ's command, there will be eternal consequences. As believers who share in Christ, as those who share His anointing, we cannot but share the loving boldness of our chief prophet when we pass on the Gospel call. And when Christ, our prophet, preached, God the Holy Spirit was there too. He was at work to make sure that the preaching had a good result. And we see that result in the next part of our text when we consider the calling of the first disciples. This part of the passage presents us with a shift from the call to the response, from the general call of the Gospel to the particular response of individual people. Now we don't know exactly how much time passed between verses 15 and 16. From the other Gospels, it appears that it could have been up to a year. That being what it may, the important thing is to realize that when we look at Mark, Mark does not use his characteristic word immediately in verse 16. Mark uses that word repeatedly throughout his Gospel. And that word in Greek is often translated as at once or without delay in the NIV. But we don't find that expression in verse 16. And that leads us to conclude that there was some length of time between verses 15 and 16. Mark puts before us this picture of the Lord Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. As He walks along the lake shore, most likely on the northwestern side, He sees Simon and Andrew, two brothers, of course, Simon is the man who will later be called Peter. His two brothers are in their boat not too far from the shore and they're, they're casting their nets into the water. Now, casting nets is something we don't really hear about today. Well, casting nets, that involved a net. Maybe it was round and it had weights around the edges. And when that net was thrown into the water, the weight would carry the net to the bottom and the fish would be trapped along the way. This is what Simon and Andrew were doing. They were simply carrying out their daily work. 
probably doing the same job that their father had done and his father before him and so on. And Jesus speaks to them. And His words are are rather arresting. He says, Come, follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. And perhaps we, we read these words with a bit too much familiarity. Let's try and take a step back for a moment. Keep in mind verses 14 and 15 while we do this. Jesus the prophet had been preaching throughout Galilee. He did this for some time. He developed a reputation. Unless Simon and Andrew had been in their boat the entire time, they would have heard about him. In fact, we know from John's Gospel that they did have a previous encounter with Jesus. They knew who He was. It wasn't like this is the first time they'd seen Him. And that explains something of the brisk character of what Christ was saying here. He'd been preaching as a prophet, and now He was calling people to follow Him. Note what's happening here. He's taking on the role of a rabbi or a teacher. Now the unique thing about what Christ was doing was that He was calling men to follow Him. Prophets didn't do that. Rabbis didn't do that. Prophets called people to follow God. Rabbis called people to learn Torah or the law of the Scriptures from them. The Lord Jesus was doing something entirely unique when He called these men to follow Him. In the way that He called them, He implied that He was God. That He had the authority to do this. And this is also seen in the fact that He didn't give them a choice. He didn't ask them to follow Him. Now He commanded them. He was going to make them fishers of men. By the appointment of Jesus Christ Himself, they will become those who cast out their nets for the kingdom of God and catch men in them. When Christ says this, He's anticipating or He's looking forward to the job He's going to give these men after His resurrection. His words imply the Great Commission where Christ sends out the disciples to make more disciples. And then with verse 18... Right at the beginning, we find that characteristic word I just mentioned a moment ago, at once or immediately. Mark tells us that right away they left their nets and they followed Him. They became His disciples. He became their rabbi, their teacher. There's a dramatic call and and the response is equally dramatic. Like God at creation... Jesus speaks and it happens. We're left in amazement at this prophet and teacher. Who is he that he can speak and and create this dramatic obedience? You see, these words are not here to teach us the radical character of discipleship. We learn about that elsewhere in Scripture. And perhaps we'll get to some of those passages in Mark too. These words are here to leave us in awe of the Son of God our great prophet and teacher. This is not about Simon and Andrew or us. This is about Christ and directing our hearts and minds to Him, to praise Him, to see Him for who He is. 
Well, Christ then moves on a bit further down the lake and He sees James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They are in the boat getting their nets ready for some more fishing. Right away, we're told. And there's that word again. He calls them and, and they too, they respond dramatically. In fact, their response is even a bit more dramatic because they have their father with them. Their father who would have expected them to carry on with the family business. But now this rabbi comes and calls them to be his disciples. And they leave. Of course, there are the hired men who are left behind. Mark notes that because that implies that the family was a bit on the wealthier end of the Galilean fishing industry. But nevertheless, to leave it all behind was very dramatic. They simply say farewell and become Jesus' disciples. One of the unusual things about this calling is the fact that Jesus chooses these particular men. They're common folk. They're unschooled or relatively unschooled fishermen. They would have had some basic education, but nothing nothing really fancy. And again, note how this fits with the character of his earthly ministry. It reminds us of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-27. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You could paraphrase that by saying that Christianity is for losers. This is the way God works. This is what Christ's ministry on earth was like. And that's why He chose these men to be His disciples. And God still works this way today. A way that's totally upside down. A way that's totally foreign to human ways of thinking. Another thing we need to note is the fact that Christ takes the initiative in calling. John and other prophets had their followers. Rabbis in Jesus' day had their disciples. But in those cases, it was usually the disciples who would take the initiative. They would go after the prophet. They would go after the rabbi and say, please, let me be your disciple. I want to learn from you. James, John, Peter, and Andrew woke up that morning and believed that they were going fishing like they'd always done. They envisioned that they would be fishing the next day and the next day after that and next year and so on. They envisioned that their sons would be fishing, that their grandsons would be fishing. But along comes Christ. And He throws everything upside down by taking the initiative and calling them. That illustrates, again, what His work is like. He is the sovereign God. As one commentator puts it, becoming a disciple of Jesus is more of a gift than an achievement. In fact, we could and should say that it is entirely a gift. When the Lord Jesus effectively calls someone to be His disciple, to be His follower, when they hear His voice, they will respond in faith. And again, notice once more how His voice is heard in the form of a command. He doesn't beg. He doesn't plead with these men. 
He calls them. And they come. And today we are Christ's mouth. He wants the call to discipleship to be heard from us. And if we water down His call into some kind of invitation or plea, it's not faithful to Him. It's not faithful to the example of the apostles. He's sovereign. And He uses His sovereign command to draw in those whom He has chosen. And today, our prophetic responsibility is to call people to follow Him. Some will respond as dramatically as the fishermen did in our text. God has been at work with them for some time before we came along, and it was just a matter of one last definitive push. Others will hear the call for the first time, and it may take ten more times before the Spirit leads them to follow. Still others will hear the call merely with their ears and they will reject it with their hearts their whole life long. Though we long for others to become Christ's disciples with us, the results are not our responsibility. That belongs to Him. He will create obedience whenever and wherever He wills. Our responsibility is simply to be His mouth. As those who share in Christ's anointing as a prophet, we are the means by which His voice will be heard today. Christ preached the good news in Galilee and men believed what He preached. And so when the the call to discipleship came, they responded in faith. Christ was working through His Word and Spirit to gather them to Himself. And in so doing, this this was part of the movement of His life. Of Him continuing along His trajectory to the cross, and to our redemption. It's all part of the plan. And today, let's thank God that He sent Christ to be our chief prophet and teacher. Let's praise God that Jesus faithfully taught the good news of the kingdom. Let's rejoice that our chief prophet continues to carry out His office today, both through us and through others. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.